All right, so we've been going through the series, and each week we kind of like talk about why are we doing this. I'm going to change it up so that we don't just keep repeating ourselves. A couple new facts that I found out this week as I was looking through just some new ideas of why you even go through such heady stuff. One of the things I've been noticing as I've been reading a lot of the books on suffering is everybody highlights the same problem. Everything seems to be going along really well, and this subject is very philosophical until the blink of an eye, everything changes. And suddenly the problem of suffering for us is no longer an academic problem. It's not a philosophical problem. We're actually going through something that's pretty devastating. What I'm hoping to do through this series is help us to prepare for that, because it will happen. For some of you, it's already happened. And if we talk about those stories, I think we'd hear heart-wrenching things that come out of what's already happened. But I can tell you that more is on its way. That's what Jesus said we could expect in this life. So that's why we're doing it now in a place of relative calm. Hopefully we can think about some of these things and also help other people who are going to go through it. Now, I wouldn't recommend if you know somebody who's going through suffering go, hey, you should listen to these talks. <laughs> um, they, they probably need something else at that time. But at some point, a lot of our faith stumbles because of it. Here's another thing. The Barna Research Group asked people, in general, Christians and non-Christians, if you had only one question you could ask God and he had to answer you, what would the question be? Well, you guessed that the question is going to be, if God exists, how does he allow suffering and evil? It seems like it's on everybody's mind, Christians and non-Christians. If you just had one question, everybody seems to want to know why. That seems to be it. Finally, I was reading this week, and actually Jeremy and I had talked about this earlier, but I was reading and went back and looked. You know, Anthony Flew was a very famous atheist. He was probably the dean of philosophers in the atheist movement. I mean, he was very respected, not like some vulgar guy like Richard Dawkins or some idiot like Christopher Hitchens. I mean, he was really a very well-reasoned philosopher for atheism. And five years ago, he abandoned his views, which shocked everybody, and announced that he thought there was a God. What had convinced him that there was a God was all of the ideas about intelligent design and seeing a design in the universe. But he stopped there. People wondered if he was going to continue the dialogue because he was speaking to so many Christians, if he was going to continue the dialogue and maybe say, yes, not only do I believe there's a God, but I think it might be the Christian God, and he hasn't been able to go there. Why? Because the problem of suffering and evil has stopped him. In the words of somebody else observing Anthony Flew, they say, it seems like he believes that there is a God, that he did design the universe, but then he abandoned it and took off. There's a lot of us who sometimes feel that way in the midst of suffering. That's why we're doing this. So here's where we've been, our roadmap. We spent some time going through free will for the last couple of weeks, trying to analyze it. We left off with these questions last week. Why did God create us if he knew we would fall? And that that would mean for many people that that would mean we would suffer eternally. Is God culpable for sin because he created us knowing we would sin? And I'd like to just put up the answers to that last question about his culpability, because we're going to come back to it again. So far, these have been my answers, and I haven't heard anybody challenge them yet, although I'm not asking for that now. <laughs> my answer so far is just because God allows us the possibility of sin, and of course he does prohibit it, doesn't make him culpable for sin. Doesn't make him a causative factor in sin, even, just because he allowed the possibility of it. Some of you have already started to wrestle with that a little bit, and I'd like to talk to you about it, like I said, afterwards. God is the source of all good, and all good comes from God. That sounds kind of easy. I throw that up last week, but think about that. All good comes from God. No good could come from anywhere but God. He's the source of all good. Even good in people who don't believe in God 
the scripture says, comes ultimately from God. That's a more scandalous statement than you might think. You should wrestle with that. I've cited James 1.17. We sing that song all the time. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Do you believe that? We also know that God is holy, pure, and blameless, that he can't be the author or cause or source of sin. Habakkuk 1.13, James 1.13, and Matthew 19.17. And finally, the place where we're going to come back and tie it all up at the end probably is, okay, but even if all of that is true, it seems that God still allows evil. And if you have trouble with the allowance of evil, that's kind of what we're struggling with. Because if we say that God doesn't allow it, then that means we're saying it goes on against his ability to stop it. We are going to have to talk about that at the end. All right. If you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, tonight I want to take your views on it. So what I'm going to do right now is pass out a survey. I want you to fill it out. I want to know what you think of some of these questions on here. And I want to get your opinion on each one of them. Suffering results from God's punishment on unrepentant people. Do you believe that or not? Suffering results from God's discipline in our lives. or It's a test we face from God. It results from acts of Satan and his demons. Do you believe that? We're allowed to suffer to provide an example to others of how to live in the midst of suffering. Or we're allowed to suffer so that we can better sympathize with others. We're allowed to suffer to keep us humble. We're allowed to suffer so that God teach us things that he couldn't otherwise teach us except through suffering. We're allowed to suffer so we can better depend on him. God causes suffering to get our attention or to speak to us. God causes suffering to help us to grow in our relationship with Christ. And God causes suffering for the betterment of the work of Christ in the world. And we put down, like we had talked about, persecution and martyrdom. I want to stop right now and get your thoughts on that. But here's what I want you to do. I'm not saying that only one of those is true. What I want you to assume is that that can be one of the reasons and leave it right there. So let me pass these out real fast. So what I'm asking you to do is put down whether you, for each statement, whether you agree with it or disagree with it and how strongly. All right, some of you might pass this class. Oh, no, is this, I'm sorry, it's in a class. All right, never mind. It feels that way. Okay, let's come back together. As Soren prayed earlier tonight, we are starting to now walk through biblical responses to the issue of suffering and evil. We've laid out the problem enough times, and we'll come back to it. So tonight, we're starting there in our explanation. You remember this thing? where we've taken suffering and kind of (laughs) cubed it, you know. We've also said that in the last couple weeks, what we did is we separated this thing out, and we've been looking at four-fifths of it. And we had kind of said we're going to come back to the other fifth. If you remember, the four-fifths formulation that C.S. Lewis just kind of arbitrarily came up with was that four-fifths of suffering is caused by our agency, human free will, us doing things to one another. Okay, we've been focusing on that for a couple of weeks. We're not completely done So for those of you who are still wrestling with the free will issue, we have to tie it back up. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to ditch that and just focus on this thing, okay? And I want to give it another term. Because, as I said earlier, philosophically, some people talk about this as natural evil, whereas the other part where we're doing things to one another in our free will is more of a moral evil. Here's the problem we're dealing with tonight. Natural evil could cover a lot of things, but tonight I want to specifically talk about natural disasters. Because that seems to be another frequently cited thing when people say, well, how could God allow? And they start to spin things out. 
Let me characterize this easily. Yeah. That would include disease too, right? It does, and I'm going to talk about disease starting next week. Because I'm actually, thank you, I'm going to exclude for now, I'm going to exclude illness and death for now, and just literally focus on the natural disasters themselves. The reason it's important to do this separately is because a lot of people come up with the free will defense. You say, why is there suffering in the world? And as we saw in your cards after the first night, one of the number one answers is, well, it's free will, right? But free will, we said, has a lot of issues we have to delve into. We delved into some of them. But it doesn't solve the problem even if free will was a nice, neat answer. Because free will doesn't answer what happened in the Asian tsunami when 250,000 people were wiped out in a single wave. What happened in the earthquake, for example, in China last year in Sichuan province where 70,000 people died within the beginning of the earthquake and then they still had probably 20 to 25,000 people missing that maybe some to this day don't know where those people are. Those are questions that are thrown back and I think they're good questions to throw back because free will doesn't seem to answer that. Sure, I understand if I hit you, if I stab you, if I do something evil, if I try to do something wrong to you, how that could hurt you, but how does free will have anything to do with that? So we have to kind of look at that tonight. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to put up on the screen some responses that are given to the issue of natural disasters. And then you can respond back and tell me what you think, and then we can look at some biblical verses that go along with it. So I'm going to put up a proposition and see what you think of it. So put your thinking caps on. Let's try this. (laughs) By the way, these are not in any order. God has created the world to operate within certain laws of nature that he ordained. Natural disasters happen on their own, just like gravity works on its own to hold the universe in place. So if you want to know why a tsunami wipes out people or why a drought kills people every year or why it is that you know, an earthquake happens when it does and it seems like nothing prevents it and lots of people die in a tragedy, this might be the answer. And you're allowed now to push back and say, I agree, disagree. What do you think of this answer? Yeah. Well, if God is the one that ordained the law of nature, then it doesn't really clear God of any responsibility. I mean, if that's the issue, if, if by somehow saying God's not responsible because this is the way you know, things work in the natural order, I mean, if you were still looking to blame God for something, I think you still could just by saying, well, God, God created the laws that way. Okay, let me try the explanation, and you can blame God, okay? You ready? (laughs) Let me try the explanation. The tsunami is nothing more than just a naturally occurring feature on the earth. It just happens, right? It happens every so often when you get an earthquake in the ocean. It's going to happen. God didn't make it happen. It just happened. What do you think of that? Joe? I think the more pressing question becomes why doesn't it stop it at that point? Because he would have control if he would know what's going to happen. Okay. It just seems like he made a broken thing. Like, I mean, I'd assume God could be good enough to make a world that doesn't have those things. And so, like, it, it still begs the question, like, why do they exist? Like, why did he make a world that has them at all? So in your question, though, there's an assumption, which is that natural disasters are a defect somehow, right? Well, not necessarily like that God messed up, but that if we're unsettled by the idea of suffering from natural disasters... And we say, we think natural disasters are a bad thing, and then God made it so that it had bad things in it. And yeah, like there's a presupposition that this shouldn't be there. So yeah. Okay. But it does depend on it being a bad thing. Yes. Okay. 
Well, yeah, that's just kind of what I wonder. Like, I don't know enough about science and the way the Earth works to understand, like, the maybe, like, counterbalance. But I know, like, with forest fires, you know, a lot of times it seems like, oh, no, all this stuff is burning. And then people are like, no, that actually can be a good thing because of, like, regrowth and all that. So if there were kind of, like, an maybe, like, equal and opposite benefit, then maybe that would destroy your point. (laughs) (laughs) Come back. But even in response to that, I agree, like, the, I think a lot of natural disasters, like, wouldn't be bad if no one was there to actually, like, suffer it, you know, like, but God could theoretically create a world where, like, there was nothing that would have the potentiality of hurting someone happened, you know, like, where those things didn't even occur at all, like. Okay, somebody else had a hand over here? Yeah. That type of world, though, that, like, Phil is describing where there could be none of that, whatever, is a very static world. And this world is growing and changing. And I actually view it as a very beautiful thing. Like, man is really new to the planet, but the planet's been around for, I believe, billions of years. So it formed in that way. That's where mountains came from, and rivers, and, you know, creation. Like, creation needed to take its time. There's a certain order to creation. Even in the Bible, there's an order to creation. So it's not a static world. It breathes, it moves, just like we do. So... I just I agree that the natural disasters suck because now we're here and we might be living in a town and we built a building that can't withstand certain earthquakes, but I mean that's just kind of the way things are. Can I come in this way? Yeah, Ben. Um, well, there's there's two things about this particular direction. One of them is that natural disasters can hurt things other than humans, but sometimes that's beneficial for us. Um, if you buy into the fact or to the fact the idea that dinosaurs and the like died out as a result of a large natural disaster. I would consider dinosaurs on Earth as not very beneficial to man on Earth. Actually, they end up being very beneficial when they become petroleum deposits, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and, then, yeah. and fossil fuels, well, right? No, that actually goes with it even more, because then you end up with stuff we can utilize later. All right, all right, all right. Let's keep some order, yeah. I'm getting a whistle, yeah. Even if, even if we had a world that was static, or even like if we lived inside of like metal rooms that like didn't have nature and weather and whatnot, but, like, had no natural disasters because of that, personally, like, I'd prefer to live in that world. Maybe not everybody would, you know, but, like, if you could say that could just be taken out and, like, have a static world, like, I'd be okay with that. Like, that's more of even a preference, and I could see that still being beneficial. I think they may have a room for you, but it has rubber, well, like, walls or that, and it's not <laughs> kind of like, yeah. Yes, it's early. You could have a world that was not static where things were changing, but they weren't as extreme. So sometimes we have very large earthquakes that kill a bunch of people. Sometimes, most of the time, actually, we have earthquakes that are very small. And sometimes we have very big storms and we have tornadoes, but sometimes we just have just wind and storms that don't really kill a whole lot of people. So I guess you could have the same effects of a changing world constantly over billions of years and not have it so extreme so that people would suffer. So. Okay, last comment, then I'm going to move on. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's an interesting point, and I, I kind of agree with you, but at the same time, I wonder, like, a, an earthquake that kills hundreds of thousands of people, like, feels really, really big, but at the same time, when you think of, like, the span of the whole globe, like, almost part of the reason why they're so devastating is because of our population density, and because, like, there's so many people here that, like, something that might affect, you know, a few thousand square miles impacts us in a really big way, but at the same time, it's not, like, over a whole continent, over, over like half the globe. So I don't know. I'm going to come to those points about us and what we've done. So I'm, that's why I'm going to freeze it right there for a second. Because we're going to have to wrestle with that. Let me just look at this question with you for a minute. 
Do you believe that natural disasters just happen on their own, just the way gravity happens on its own? Do you believe that statement? Because I want you to consider what Scripture says about something like that. Scripture actually talks about God being in nature at all times and keeping things together. Look at Colossians 1, 15 and 17. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you believe what Paul is saying, it's a very stunning statement that the entire universe holds together because of Christ. So to think of God as somebody who just kind of sets it up and lets it go, and I've heard this among Christians. I know that's a deistic idea of an absentee God who sets it up like a watch and lets it run, but actually I think it's crept into Christianity a lot. We always tend to argue that, well, that's just the laws of nature. That's true. God is a designer. God designs. He's a creator as well, and he's intricate. And he seems to rarely violate the laws that he's created, except when he performs a miracle that goes against the laws. But at the same time, to say that God is not involved in it at all, you're going to see in a moment as we start to go through Scripture, that's a totally different God. Here's another verse from Matthew, and we've covered this in our extensive study of Matthew. Jesus says that he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is a causative force in nature, in weather, in the sun rising and setting. I know you could say, no, I think he's just talking about that metaphorically. I don't know. Plus, you could say, well, what did Jesus know? That would be strange. (laughs) You know, like he didn't know any better. Like, again, the same Jesus that in all all things hold together in, he seems to put God in that place where he's active in what's going on. Here's, listen to Psalms 147. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his words and melts them. He stirs up the breezes and the waters flow. This describes a God who's intimately involved in what's going on. Not one that just goes, yeah, that's just kind of how the water cycle works. It just kind of works. I designed it. It works great. I mean, that is true. And yet he doesn't seem to be far from it. It would be convenient if we could believe that. As some of you have already pointed out, that doesn't really mean that God is totally off the hook anyway because he could have created potentially a world that doesn't have them. I don't even know if I believe that. But either way, I don't think it's true just because I don't think that anything just happens like God left it alone. Let's move on real fast and look at this. We were just talking about this. That's why I wanted to kind of stop it there and move forward. A lot of the forces that can cause suffering are things that God put in the world for good. Like, I think gravity is a good thing. Most of us would agree. But if you jump off a bridge, it's going to cause you suffering. If you fall off a roof, it's going to cause you suffering. I mean, you can't prevent that. You go, well, hey, wait a minute. I mean, God could have prevented my friend from dying when he fell off the roof. Hmm. He could have. You're right. But he'd have to suspend the laws of gravity. And then how long, how many times, how, how often, every single time we have to come back to that. But just think about that. You guys have already mentioned plate tectonics. Surly's point was, well, maybe they could be less in force. I don't know. Maybe they can be. But if for certain laws to work, if God is really behind the way these things work, 
Everything that we have from land masses to mountains and everything else we have were created by these huge forces in nature. But it's also resulted in good things. Well, I think mountains are good things. I think land is a good thing. Uh, I think oil and fuel, I think we're still allowed to say is a good thing for a couple of years before we're totally run out of town for saying that. Um, But all of that causes also earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes. We're kind of in the path of it, right? Look at the water cycle. I mean, the water cycle is what causes hurricanes and floods. It's also the biggest desalination plant on the planet. It's what gives us fresh water out of the oceans. It's what allows life to exist on this planet. So just something to think about, that it seems like what you're already hitting on is there. Yes? Like someone's falling off a roof, you can say, well, I just won't do gravity this time. And how long would that go? Every time he needs to. I think at some point, I actually think there's a limit to how far God could intervene. Not because he can't do it, just because at some point it's not even a world anymore. I mean, he'll have to intervene in everything. All right, second one. The earth is under a curse, so that the very laws of nature have been tainted by sin, leading to natural disasters and suffering. This is a view taken by some Christians. Like, maybe it's not the way it should be, or it could have been a different way, and some of you struggle with that, is because maybe it was going to be a different way, but then somehow all of nature is now under the curse of sin, and that causes some of these disasters. The verse that's often cited is the consequence of sin that's found in Genesis. When Adam and Eve have sinned, and he's reciting the different effects that will now come, one of them, he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground is not just the soil the way we think of it. It means, it could literally mean cursed is the entire earth because of you. Most people take a theological view that as soon as sin enters the world, everything goes awry. Death and suffering and illness and all those things enter the world and maybe that infects the natural order as well. So there's another reason that could be put up. Yeah. I just add on to that. Um, I think you see that in Romans too, uh, chapter 8. Um, so the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will also be set free from its, from its slavery, to the corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Yeah, so all of creation is subjected to it because of it. And that birth pains that it's talking about in creation in Romans 8 there, it's talking about like waiting for this all to be lifted finally and get this over with. All right, so is that the whole answer? No, I think that's a, I mean, that is true. But I think there's other factors. That's why we're going through them. Here's another one. How about free will? Back to that for just a moment. Doesn't free will play a role in the way that we deal with natural disasters? I mean, think about this for a moment. Like, okay, I know it's cool right now to say because we're causing damage to the environment. Global warming and hurricanes and all that stuff can happen. And I think that might be true. Maybe the way we don't care for the earth is part of our responsibility. But let's set that aside for a second. What about us, like here in L.A., who built like, one of the largest cities in the world right on the, one of the biggest earthquake faults in the world? What about that for a moment? Like, Do we have anything in, in that way? Let me ask it a more difficult way. Why did 70,000 people die in the earthquake in China? Was it because the earthquake was so large? I mean, it was a big earthquake. <laughs> It'd be wrong. I don't want one of those here. But what was some of the reasons? Anyone know? The building codes aren't as stringent as they are. The building codes are not as stringent, but there's something else even worse than that. They were paying people off not to build the code, even the code that is less stringent. So sometimes our own free will plays a part. 
Like if you notice that in other parts of the world, whenever they have an earthquake, there's just a huge casualty toll. Why? Because the way that we decide that we're going to cut corners and do different things can have an impact. We do make these choices. Like if you listen to people who talk about fires these days and why so many homes burn in fires, they say it's because we started building our homes up against the mountains, which we didn't used to do. We encroached on fire zones, and now every time we have a fire, homes burn. I'm not saying that fire is not a tragedy. I'm not saying it doesn't cause suffering. I'm just saying one question we should ask is, does our decision-making contribute to what we consider as a tragedy and to the magnitude of it? Another one that I heard all the time is Hurricane Katrina. Devastated a lot of people, right? But I think we also know that part of the cause of Hurricane Katrina was levees that broke that the government knew for a long, long time needed to be fixed, but they just didn't do it. But it would not have caused the devastation it caused had we done one of two things, either told people you can't live there because we're not protecting you, or protect them. All right? I'm not saying that we're going to stop all natural disasters. I'm just saying sometimes the impact, even our own free will, even not doing what we should be doing, or what we know is better for our own selfish reasons, our own failings, just maybe our own negligence, can contribute to what we look at and go, how does God allow that? It's like, I don't know that God was cutting corners on the building codes or paying people off. I don't know that that was him doing that or saying, let's not fix the levees. Just one thing to think about, Philip. I'd agree with you that, like, I mean, definitely how we make our decisions like, can affect the magnitude of how much something is, how much suffering it causes. But I mean, philosophically, that's irrelevant to some degree. Like, if any natural disaster causes the suffering of any one person ever, like, that's a problem. And, and like, the magnitude of it, in my mind, is irrelevant. Like, it, it makes no difference. I almost agree with you about the, the, the magnitude argument. What I don't agree with you is that any time anybody dies in a, in a natural disaster, it's a problem. I mean, we're all going to die. The question is how, right? So if I die naturally or I die in an earthquake, I'm going to die. I think there's an expectation sometimes we have that people should just die in their bed. I think that's the way we'd like it, although really, if we get down into it, people just shouldn't die. They just shouldn't die ever. You know, they should just go on and on and on. But it seems like anytime anything happens where like somebody's hiking and a rock falls down on them or something, we go, that's a tragedy. Everyone's going to die. I don't know where we get the expectation that in this fallen world, we're going to live in peace and tranquility our whole lives and everything's going to work out forever. That's, that's not this life. That's the next one. All right. What do you think of this one? Sometimes God uses natural disasters to punish evil. You ever hear that guy on the TV? Hurricane Katrina happens and they say something or some big thing happens. They go, you know why that is? That's because they have so many of those types of people in the city, right? Or it's because people don't listen to God or because he's punishing America or because those people don't know God in those foreign countries, so they just wipe them out by the hundreds of thousands, right? You believe that? Okay, that was the case. I think L.A. would be, like, just level to the ground. <laughs> so you think this is a false statement. All right. Randy? Well, we do have an example of where he has done that, like where he flooded the earth. Well, how about that? Let's, let's, let's go through that list since, you, <laughs> since you're reading right off the list. Um, there's the flood, which is the granddaddy of them all, right? I mean, clearly stated because man is just too wicked. We can't have that anymore. The plagues of Egypt. Exodus 7 and all the way through Exodus 12. Sending of the locusts. How about the snakes in Numbers 21? Sent, because again, as a punishment. We have like Sodom and Gomorrah as great examples of burning sulfur like coming down from the sky to engulf the cities. We've seen storms before that arise up, like when Jonah's like, throw me overboard, I'm the one who sinned. 
I mean, so it's, it's there. Okay. Does the, does the statement true, though? Like, now that you see that God, I mean, that's scriptural. Yeah. You know I'm going to say this. Okay, but don't say it then. <laughs> no, go ahead. You're allowed to. I'll let you say it anyway, and then we're going to go to bed. All of those ancient cultures attributed things to their own particular gods. Whether or not God uses natural disasters to punish evil, well, that really could just be a matter of perspective. And just pointing to examples in the Bible doesn't make the point either. Because, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that assumption that would have to be unpacked first. Okay. That's all I'm going to say. Is there any chance you could save your husband from that comment? No? Okay. Yeah. All right, Ben. Uh, well, these particular ones, uh, and if you're taking God and what He says in the Bible at face value, which I'm not trying to challenge Jeremy on, um, God claims credit for these, like expressly, at least these particular ones. But it also seems that when He is doing it for these reasons, He lets us know. It's not like guess why this happened. You know, it's not. There's no like. So no, you're in a floating box of animals. Why do you think this happened? No, he tells him from beforehand, this is going to happen, prepare for it, I'm going to do this. And then while it's happening, like, yeah, well, he's doing it. Yeah, and I understand the argument that was made by Jeremy, but let's be clear about something. Like, if you're going to believe the words of Scripture, God is taking credit for these things. So we may not normally know, but if you're just going to believe that the words were accurately stated, that those are God's words, that he's taking credit. Jill? This is kind of like the flip side of what we were talking about before, where you were saying, well, if God could intervene... For every accident he could have, why doesn't he, or would he draw the line? This is kind of like, well, if God could punish every evil, where would he draw the line there? Wouldn't he just punish every evil there was? And I think that's right. So notice the word sometimes. I think the most arrogant we get is when we think we know. So that's why I think the cautionary statement is true that a lot of times we think we have it figured out. I mean, how many people take the airwaves every time anything happens and say, this is God's judgment, right? You know, unless you really are a prophet and you have heard from the Lord, get off the air. So there's a lot of danger when we take the arrogant position of God said or I know, what the, I know the mind of God. But because we have scripture, we at least know that it happens some of the time. I mean, you can't deny that that happens through scripture, right? I don't know. This one just scares me because it seems like it could be really, this is just opening a floodgate of racism and judgment those people are being punished. It's just kind of lofty to be sitting in a good place looking down on someone else who's suffering and, and saying, oh, well, God is punishing you. Tsk, tsk. I don't know. I just see a lot of, a lot of opportunity for, for judgment and racism and awful. Okay. Going this way? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think even if you fully accept that sometimes God uses natural disasters to punish evil, like, that doesn't mean every natural disaster of all time was always used to punish evil. And therefore, like, it doesn't answer the question that, like, if I see why do natural disasters happen and cause suffering? Well, sometimes to punish evil, like, okay, but that obviously can't be used all the time, and nor should it be the mindset because you run into that same problem with people saying, like, oh, there's a natural disaster. Someone must have done evil. Like, I just want to take your views on whether any of these even apply. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I understand that you to punish the people that are evil. Well, the people that didn't even do jack squat, I mean, he's punishing them. Yeah, that's a fair charge against God. That's probably one of the best arguments is, is in the Passover. Like, none of those firstborns were even had anything to do with the Pharaoh or the decision. They were just home one night and their sons were gone. Right? Anyone else going in the back this way? Dan? You can't say that anyone's innocent because nobody's innocent. So that argument is, is moot, in my opinion, because everyone is sin, and so no one can be declared innocent. Oh, they were innocent, they died in this, they were that way, or whatever. We all deserve to die. We should all be struck down right here and right now, you know, because of what we've done. And we're not because God shows mercy. 
Okay. I think Rachel's point is, is very good, and I don't think it's been heard in the sense that she ha- she brings up a good reason as to why this kind of thinking is a problem, because we perpetuate things against other people, and we use as uh, excuses for doing that because of the way we interpret things like this, and that's a big deal. It doesn't matter if we're all going to die or not because of our fallen nature. Because if we're perpetuating a type of sexism or racism, for example, because we have some misunderstanding of even why that occurred, then that's, that's an issue. And I, I think it's a very important thing. That's why I don't think we can just disregard people who say things like this. Okay, yeah. And you can't get around the fact that, you know, people ascribing to what God said, God said, but going back to God said, God also said it's not up to us to decide when he's punishing and when he's not. Uh, Joe... The big example of him just go after one of Job's friends for ascribing this as punishment, saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know this is you don't know that this is punishment. Do not say it's punishment. You know, to take the arrogance to actually ascribe to God. You know." Okay, let me go one more. Sometimes Satan is allowed to inflict suffering through the use of natural disasters. Anybody believe that? You believe that? Okay. See. I don't know, my view may be silly, but I have this feeling that, that God really, really hates to see us suffer, but he knows that on some level it's necessary to draw us closer to him. But I don't think he creates suffering. I think he leaves that up, that sadistic creativity for torture and, and pain. He leaves that up to Satan. I think Satan is the center of all that evil, and he's, that he, he, he originates all that mess. And God kind of just looks away in agony and kind of lets go a little bit. Okay. That would be convenient. Isn't that what happened in Job? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's the part from Job that Philip's about to reference. Doing the best to read minds as much as I can when I'm doing these slides. <laughs> in Job 1, 12 through 18, I've excerpted a little bit, try to make it shorter. Here's what it said. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house... The fire of God, which is probably lightning, that's a way to describe it, fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. Then suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, it says. Now, the reason I cited this is because God is giving Satan freedom, at least that's the interpretation you take of Job, to inflict his worst on Job as long as he doesn't touch Job. But then presumably that means that this lightning from the sky and this mighty wind is caused by Satan. He's allowed to at least have that much freedom to inflict that kind of suffering. From the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 describes Satan this way. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. So the concept of suffering is connected to this devil that prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour people. So at times, again, one other explanation that seems to have some validity and scriptural support is that Satan may be behind suffering. So you have to think about that. If we use the model of Job, that means it's Satan is still within the sovereignty of God. And if you use part of Job to understand that, that might even mean that Satan has to ask permission to do his worst to you. 
that disturbs some people to think that God is up there kind of making decisions perhaps on whether he should or should not allow this. We know that in the New Testament as well. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has come to me and asked to sift you like wheat. There was a permission asked to see if Satan could go after Peter. And Jesus' response is simply, I have prayed for you. I know some of you guys are like, can't you suspend gravity, stop the tsunami, just say no. His answer was, I've prayed for you. Like, you're going to go through this. So it seems that that could be part of the reason. Yeah. Even if God does give permission for that, for whatever reason, I don't have a problem with it, whatever. But he also promises that he would never give any individual more than he can handle, right? So if you believe that verse, then he allows within parameters things to happen to us, but never more than we would be able to handle, that we could choose to do the right thing or come through the other side in some way. I would ask you to consider whether the more than we can handle actually has to do with suffering or temptation to sin. You should consider that and we should look at it together. If that verse relates like I think it does to the temptation to avoid sin, like nobody's been tempted beyond what they can handle, it doesn't mean that nobody's been given more than they can handle in suffering. People have died. As mar- I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen to us that are beyond what we can handle. People have been burned at the stake. So we should look at it and look at it in context because I think that will change what, what we're using it for. And I've heard people use it that way and I don't believe that's a proper way to use the verse. So it, it could be dangerous, because if you say, like, hey, whatever he puts you through, it's not anything more than you can handle. It's like, I, I, that might be true, but maybe not based on that verse. Yeah. one about that verse, too. Whenever people usually quote it, they always forget the last part of it. It says, you know, we, we never get anything we can't handle through his, like, his power, like, through his help. Like, yeah. His help. Or, like, the same thing about, like, resisting the devil so that he will flee, right? But the first part of that is submit yourselves to God. Like, that's the most important part of the verse, I think. So... We, we've kind of excerpted those because they don't fit on the plate in the Christian bookstore quite in their full length. So like we make them shorter and then we hang them on the wall and then we forget what the original context was. And then, then we're all questioning whether God exists because it doesn't match the plate on our wall. <laughs> Let me read you these verses and then we're going to kind of wrap up. Here's one more explanation. That God sends natural disasters to turn people back to him. Reading from the book of Amos. And again, you can take the view that God didn't really say these things. Amos just was hearing wrong. But here's what God says in the book of Amos. That was a cheap shot, I know. Sorry. It's because I'm up here. All right. Amos 3.6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? That's like God basically asking that question. He goes on in chapter 4 to elaborate even more. So Amos 4, verses 6 on to 10 and also verse 12. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your figs and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That guy is not going to be a popular prophet. But for those of us who struggle with, is God really behind some of these things? If you believe the text of Amos, absolutely. Some of these things. You put it all together and you find a God who is active in creation to the point that all things hold together in him. He is not absentee from this. Sometimes he punishes. Sometimes he sends these things to get people to return to him. Sometimes he steps back and allows Satan to do things. Sometimes it's the interaction of our own free will and the way that the world works. Sometimes maybe those things exist in nature and the curse of sin has tainted everything in nature to make them deadly, just like all death entered the creation. That doesn't resolve everything, but it gives us an insight and it might shake up your view. If you're one of those people who think, no, it's only this thing that's happening, or he would never do that. God would never be behind a drought. Well, at least he's been this time. But I do like the comments that were made about, we cannot be arrogant to assume we know why. The only reason I can say with any certainty that any of these are true is because they're in Scripture. And unless we have something of that kind of authority then woe to those people who get on television and assume they understand what the answer is. Or even us when we think we must know. You know, all those people who step up to say they know, they're taking the stance of a prophet. And when they're wrong, the penalty in Scripture is very harsh for people who say they hear from God who have not heard or who hear wrong, you know. It's not good. That's a place where I think we're just heaping judgment on ourselves and we're hurting huge amounts of other people. I think we're causing even more suffering when we're trying to explain away things which is... But this place, I think at least we have it because the Lord has revealed it to us. That's where we started tonight. Like the secret things belong to the Lord. But through his Holy Spirit, he reveals certain things to us. And if you believe that scripture comes to us because of the inspiration and protection of the Holy Spirit, then here it is illuminated for us. Here's just some quick other explanations that people throw up. You know, they say disaster leads to self-examination of our own mortality. Disaster can bring the best out in people. I actually read one author who wrote that without disaster, there would be no heroes. You, know. <laughs> you mean the television series? Because that would be good to get that off the air. <laughs> disaster can lead to spiritual renewal. People citing that every time in these places where disasters happen, for some reason the church has actually started to take off, even in places where there wasn't a church before. Disaster shapes our character. You know something, just to critique these so that we don't spend too long on them, I'm not saying these aren't true. But they don't go any further than explaining why. They're just like, those might be results that come out of it. And maybe God intended those so those results can come out. But that seems to be a very results thing. Like, now that disasters happen, let's see what we can salvage out of it. I think most of us would be more troubled to understand that God is sometimes behind calamity. As he says in scripture numerous times. If some disasters simply occur in nature, why doesn't God prevent them? So we go back to stopping gravity, like you said. Or, or making all the tsunamis, like Shirley said, really small, so that you can just surf them, but they're not going to kill anybody, you know? Or earthquakes would be like bounce houses, like we'd all know when they were coming, and we would, like, get ready. Why doesn't God do that? You know, that actually is a question I'm not going to throw a cheap answer out. I actually think it would go to the ends of everything would have to stop to prevent all suffering. Because at some point, maybe we wouldn't have 70,000 people dying in earthquakes, but one would die, and we would call that a tragedy. We would charge God with non-existence just because he allowed that to happen. 
C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that God can and does on occasions modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles as part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these things be extremely rare. To try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free will involves, and you find that basically you've excluded life itself. Put another way, C.S. Lewis elsewhere argues that if God were to start intervening in every small thing to prevent everything that could possibly happen, he's actually in the end preventing free will, preventing our life, preventing anything. We have to have a, a world to live in in which we kind of understand how the consequences will go just for us to live and exercise the freedom that he gave us. If we think like, hey, I could just jump off a bridge and it's not going to matter because God's going to catch me, like and do anything we want over and over and over, at some point that becomes a crazy world. Or every time I'm going to swing a bat at somebody at their head, it turns into a blade of grass, he argues. That would be an interesting world. But that's God restricting every movement that we have to prevent anything from happening. That's not the world we live in. I, I don't know. I, I totally disagree with that point. Like, at least that quote. Like, I mean, isn't to some degree that's theoretically potentially what heaven is supposed to be like? And that wouldn't exclude life itself. Like, like God theoretically, and like, I don't know exactly what it would be like, like, at least my understanding now, like that it, suffering won't be there. Um, but it's not like we'll cease to be alive. I just want to point out, you can't disagree with C.S. Lewis, so I'm just going to... You know what I'm going to do? This is not the last time we're dealing with this idea, so I'm going to take your objection and come back to it, because we have a number of points in tonight's discussion that we have to wrap up. Here's where we're going. There's still other natural evils in the world. What else do the biblical writers have to say other than what we've seen already tonight? What else do they have to do about suffering? I mean, there's some stuff that we haven't covered that Jesus said, that Paul said. Is suffering that's caused by God, is that evil? Can we charge God with evil because suffering may result from what he's doing? I mean, we saw tonight, he's saying, I caused this calamity. Is that evil? Or do you just get off the hook because he's God? And then we're going to look at all your responses from tonight. We've got a little bit of work to do. Hopefully this is starting to shake out some things. And I know... Somebody said after last week, like, I feel like, like there's all these pieces, right? They're pieces of a puzzle. I hope we put them together. You guys know this group, if we go six or so weeks on something, by the time we come to the end, we reach kind of a consensus. There's still some outliers all the time. But these puzzle pieces will actually hopefully start to fit together. That's what we're hoping to do. So I just don't want to cram them all down your throat all at once. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I think first we owe you a debt of thanks that you allow us just the opportunity to learn about you in a way where we ask questions and we're not struck down just for doing that. That you tolerate a people who are so evil and so wicked and yet you are patient in so many ways. And Lord, I don't know how often it is that you do send this kind of calamity to punish people for their sin, but I would guess it's not as often as we deserve for sure. And it's certainly not as often as we attribute to you. But thank you, Lord, that we can learn together, that we can struggle together, and that mostly the things that we're doing in this room are going to be for the benefit of those who don't know you and who won't know you because of the questions that they're stumbling over. May your Holy Spirit, as it spoke through us tonight, may it also engage those people. We're all struggling in this world, Lord, but we have a hope in a world to come. And Lord, nothing is as beautiful as bringing others to a knowledge of you so that we can share that together forever. We pray that in your name. Amen.